It's life or death. Is there any hope? And he, and he sort of laughed and said, you know, it is really tough. It can be a downer looking at this issue. But then they hit her, and so, okay, all right, then you don't know how far are they willing to go. Hello and welcome to The Full Story, USA Today's podcast that goes behind the scenes in journalism. I'm Jim Lenahan. And I'm Shannon Ray Green. Shannon, when you turn on the water faucet, do you ever think about where that water comes from? Well, I actually do. You might be surprised because obviously we're insanely lucky to take it for granted. We just turn on the faucet, water comes out, and it's clean and safe. However, sometimes I do think of people who spend the majority of their days traveling to get safe water for their families, people across the world. That's why it's really nuts that right here in America, in Flint, Michigan, people have been exposed to unsafe water coming out of their taps. Right. The FBI is now involved in an investigation into what happened in Flint. It goes to show we should really never, ever take it for granted. That's absolutely right. And you are correct that that story has made people really start to think about the source of their water, where it comes from. But even beyond just water safety, there's also an issue that maybe a lot of people haven't considered just a water supply. You know, just how much water can we continue to draw from underground sources before we start to run out? Yeah, I think that's in the back of people's minds. It's not something that's come up as much of an issue right in front of our eyes. That's right. So some journalists from the USA Today Network recently investigated the issue of diminishing groundwater And they traveled to California and Kansas and even Peru and India and Morocco to really examine this issue. It's a report called Pumped Dry, and it was completed with the help of the Pulitzer Center on Crisis Reporting. On this episode of The Full Story, we talk with Steve Elfers, video director for USA Today, and Ian James, an environmental reporter for the Desert Sun in Palm Springs, California. They work together throughout this whole project. They talked to us about the people they met who were frantically trying to cope with their wells running dry. For some, it's so bad that it's leading to suicide cases on a mass scale. In another part of the world, Steve and Ian got caught in the middle of a water conflict that took a violent turn. Let's hear from them. Coming from the East Coast where I'm on municipal water and I turn the faucet and there it is. That's Steve Elfers. There was a lot of things that surprised me. In India, Driving down the road, you may not realize that the pressure that the farmers are under, um, both because they've gone into debt to make their farms work, and when a well fails, that could cascade to an extended family of, you know, a dozen individuals. Um, And so the suicide rate, as a result, was astonishing there uh, to me, uh, and I think to anyone who um, is familiar with, uh, with the situation. That suicide rate that Steve refers to, it's about 4,000 farmers and laborers in just one state in India in a year. That's so horrible. Yeah. Steve and Ian spent some time with one family they met who, while they weren't quite that desperate, they were being forced to change their way of life due to vanishing water. And they were... Um, adapting and struggling in a situation where all of their wells had run dry. They were now dry farming their land. Um, And the the two two of the younger, two of the the 20-year-old boys were now having to travel uh, back and forth 
um, to uh, in to town to take jobs to help subsidize the family farm because they were at the point where it wasn't enough to sustain um, the family. Right. And what I found especially heartbreaking about that family story is that they had, they were in debt and they had gone deep into debt to drill additional boreholes to try to find water and they went down about 700 or 800 feet and they still didn't find water and that was just crushing for that family. That's Ian James. And as we asked around we realized that there are really a lot of people in similar situations in that part of India and, and so that really, we thought that was an important story to tell. Now, we mentioned a violent conflict in Peru. Right. It occurred when Steve and Ian were visiting a site where pipes were being laid to move water from wells on small farms to a larger agribusiness. Well, let's let them tell us the story. This was uh, in, a, in a village of Okukahe, uh, which is south of the town of Ica, which is the, um, the main the, the, the main. Uh, city in the area. We had no idea that there were tensions in that town, that there was a conflict brewing before we, we traveled there. Basically, you know, what's happening is water is becoming so valuable and the location of these pumps are so valuable that large farms are buying up smaller farms that have wells and then they're piping that water to their to their farms. We had a, uh, a village protesting uh, the the laying of pipe, um, and they had, the night before we got there, they, someone in the village had burned um, some pipe that was lying on the ground. Um, the farm was accusing, you know, um, the townspeople of doing it. They were um, not really denying it, um, and they were showing us around the next day. Over the, just the two or three days we were watching the issue, it was building and building. The farm had, the farmer, uh, the large agro-export farm had hired what seemed to be thugs, um, you know, secure, he called them security, mm -hmm. off of his farm um, to try to intimidate the town. So the company's plan was to lay these pipes, eventually start pumping from these wells once it got permission from the local water authority, and then take that water to a farm several miles away that produces grapes for export, table grapes. And so we arrived there shortly after these townspeople and local farmers had protested the company's plans and had driven away uh, some of the machinery that was laying these pipes. We saw some of the pipes burned on the ground. Uh, everyone was uh, quite upset about what was happening and explained their concerns to us. A number of the townspeople were crowded around and we spoke with, with Jocelyn Guzman, uh, this college student who had been leading this protest and who has been opposing the company's plans. After we talked with them, the townspeople basically spent the night there. Some of them stayed the night uh, saying that they wanted to, to keep the company from coming back to lay more pipes. And we returned in the morning and at that point went along with Jocelyn Guzman and some of the other people in the town who said they were going to another area uh, to make sure the company wasn't continuing to do that work. And on the way, that's when another car pulled in front of us, stopped, and a number of men got out and surrounded the car and were uh, basically threatening Jocelyn. And one of them punched her when she got out to ask them what was going on. And at that point, we uh, got out of there, not before one of the men opened the door 
and came close to taking one of our cameras or appeared to do that. In any case, he said, don't film. And uh, they were tense moments. Amigo, soy el cucaje, estoy pasando. Amigo, ¿qué pasa? Ay, amigo, amigo, ya, ey, amigo. Amigo, 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 ya, ey. No firme. No firme. Ya, no firme, no firme. Ya, vete. We caught on video her getting punched in the mouth by one of these guys. And all of a sudden, we're smack in the middle of um, this. You know, they're, they're trying to get us out of the area. They don't want us to see what's going on. I didn't expect the punch, but I also didn't think it was smart to get out of the car. These, I mean, they had clearly blocked the, blocked the road in front of us. Uh, and she was out of the car before we could say a word. Um, so I just made sure I kept the camera on the action. Um, but you rely on, you know, sort of a lot of observations in a situation like this. They were very, they were brandishing weapons before that. They were walking with machetes, walking with clubs, walking with baseball bats. They, very, very openly, they wanted us to see them. When they approached the car, they weren't holding those things. So my first, my, my feeling was, this is going to be a bluff, okay? But then they hit her, and so, okay, all right, then you don't know how far are they willing to go. She got back in the car. They told us to back up. We started backing up. They saw me filming. They came around and, you know, asked not so And they did know we were journalists. Right. He reached for it, and did he, put his, he didn't put his hand on it, but I also had a bald fist, you know, next to my, next to the camera, so it never quite came to that, you know. And, you know, he made a fist and tried to, he started to punch the window, then he ended up slapping it. And so at that point, I thought, this is sort of bluff and bravado, but before I could lock the door, he, you know, he had snatched it open. But he never laid a hand on me, and he never laid a hand on the camera, and I was, you know, telling him that he couldn't have it. So, um, so in the end, you know, they, they you know, were all puffed up, and they walked away, and um, we backed off. Our presence certainly may change the dynamic, but um, certainly there, there were a lot of tensions anyway. It was simply the fact that she was separated from some of the other young men who might have stood up for her in that moment. I think the camera can work both ways. They, it's certainly, you know, on uh, a, a, a record of what's happening. Um, and I also think it can, um, it can keep some behavior in check. If they know they're being filmed, they're, they may be less likely to, um, to go as far as they would without the camera there. So, um, you know, my, my role in that moment was to, to be the, you know, to make sure I captured what was unfolding as faithfully as possible. Um, and then we can, you know, we can weigh it later. It's hard to edit something that you don't actually have. So, so in those situations, I just try to, you know, just try to keep rolling and making sure that I'm, I'm getting um, what's unfolding and not, but not, be a you know a can of gas on a, in a fire or try to exacerbate it um, but I definitely you know had the camera pointed at, at him and you know and as the, the, the assailant as he you know is walking around so he sees it he wouldn't have come around and tried to ask for it if you know if it wasn't there but um, but uh, I also wanted to make sure we had you know we had a good record of who these people were what was going through my mind was that I really had not expected to end up right in the middle of a conflict over water. You don't see this uh, that often. And it is sort of, certainly I've heard about conflicts over water in parts of Africa between herders and farmers. Uh, it does happen in various parts of the world. And my sense is that this is the type of conflict over water that, that appears to be on the rise, uh, especially in places where uh, water is scarce and there are growing demands. and. Um, just it creates more fights. 
we just witnessed something that um, ha unfortunately unfold has unfolded down there over you know many many other times um, as um, large farms have squared off with villages and smaller interests um, and you know frankly we went to Peru not expecting to see it you know unfold right in front of us but um, um, it certainly illustrated how real the, the challenge um, of uh, you know, de depleting water is in areas where it's life or death. When you think of thugs intimidating people, I think of drugs. So it's shocking to me that this resource, water, that I think we imagine as just so plentiful, has become something that needs padlocks and men showing their fists to scare people away just to protect it. It's, it's shocking to it, me. It absolutely is shocking. The violence, the deaths, it's so tragic. Yeah, it's horrific. There were a couple of other moments that left our journalists also a bit stunned. Now, one took place in Kansas, where Steve found out what a dry well sounds like. I think this was such a great idea to make something that you can't really even see that well, because it goes down so deep and it's pretty hidden, so much more tangible. You can hear the reality of how deep it goes with every ping and echo. Hearing it is actually pretty intense because it sort of just slaps you in the face. Right. Uh, when Grandpa was drilling wells, you find big gravel or rocks like this, uh, you were going to find a really good well. And now, it just... Uh... Now, the only water it finds is a couple, three feet at the very bottom of the well that uh, the pumps can't effectively access anymore. That was unexpected. That was Jay Garretson, um, and he was standing, he was showing us a well that had gone completely dry and what that looked like, and it was basically just capped over. He removed the cap and picked up a rock and talked about his, he remembered his grandfather drilled that well and the kind of stones that, you know, that the old farmers looked for to know that, that a well would be good. Of course, it wasn't good anymore, and he dropped a stone down there, and it, what you're hearing is it ricocheting off the sides and ultimately splashing at the bottom. Steve, can I just add, my memory of that and talking to Jay was that he and his brother drilled that well, and that in about a decade's time, it went dry. It was a way to listen to what a dry well sounds like, which I hadn't really expected. What a heartbreaking sound for those brothers to have to hear, to know that the work that they put in for their livelihood, for the future of their family is now just an echoing noise of the yeah. lack of water. It's incredible sound because you never would think a dry well would make any sound, right? So yeah. you hear that. It's really compelling stuff. Now, let's go back to India where we started. And Steve describes the most compelling image in all of his reporting for this story. We were in a village of Dapagyan in um, India. Um, and this is an this is a village where the groundwater still exists, but it's about 900, you know, feet below your, um, uh, below the ground. Um, and they used to have three or four working wells. I can't recall exactly. They were down to one working well for the entire village. And as a result, they had to ration the water. And they were, the well only pumped in the mornings for an hour and so people would line up their pots um, their water vessels and there was a protocol you know basically you shouldn't bring more than five and they were lined up you know for a, you know a day in advance um, to get the water and and in one of the so when the water ran, only runs for an hour so we were at, at one of the wells as the water w had, had turned off or the water ran out 
of the of the tank, and there's a little boy there, sort of when he's in line waiting to fill his vessel, and it basically got about half full, and he's looking in the little you know in the in the in the the pipe which has no faucet, um, and it's and the and it's dripping, you know, and so um, it he didn't react, he didn't cry, he just you know he looked in there to see if there was more and stuck his finger in to see if there was more, and and that was it, um, and so. That repeats itself, you know, probably every day that, that they're they're drawing water, and you know they're very stoic about it, but it's um it has powerful implications for um for the future of that village and the and that family, and so to me that was one of the earliest images I saw of the problem that illustrated to me you know how significant it was. And I would I just want to add about that that. It's just a real struggle for people in that town. Some of them talked about having to walk a couple of miles when it got really difficult to find water. And the town around it, there are a number of sugarcane farms where you know the, the farmers with the deepest wells are able to keep pumping while it's difficult for people in that town to have enough water. And even in some time, when it got difficult, sometimes people would go to farms, ask for water, and sometimes the farms would turn them away. This situation seems pretty bleak. Is there any hope? I asked uh, one leading water scientist that very question, is there any hope? And he, and he sort of laughed and said, you know, it is really tough. It can be a downer looking at this issue. For all of us, it's not a problem until it's that day that the water stops coming out of the faucet, right? And so for those people, even in the same neighborhoods, you know, there, there were some people on one side of the street, they had, they had town water and people on the other street were reliant on a well that wasn't working and they were you know running hoses across the street and trying to fill tanks and um, it is it is a it is a, a massive problem and there's um, you know w it's just a matter of time as to when it reaches you it will all it will certainly affect you know our our grocery stores if um, if some of the main ag agricultural areas that the countries relied upon you know all of a sudden stop yielding um, the kinds of um, uh, corn and and grains that they've yielded yielded in the past. So there's um it's it's certainly going to affect people in ways that they may not even uh, realize. You can read more about this issue and watch videos at pumpdry.usatoday.com. Our thanks to Steve Elfers and Ian James for their time. I'm Jim Lenahan. And I'm Shannon Ray Green. We'll be back with more stories about journalism throughout 2016 on the full story. Thanks for listening.